You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. My name is Corbin, and I'm speaking today with Martin Lukacs. Martin's an independent journalist based in Montreal. We're going to talk about his new book, The Trudeau Formula, Seduction and Betrayal in an Age of Discontent, and anything else we feel like. Welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Martin. Hey, Corbin. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you've been touring the country, uh, doing a book tour promoting your book, which is almost over. I think it will be over by the time people are listening to this podcast. What's it been like? Where are you, where are you at now? I'm talking to you from uh, Edmonton, and uh, we're just dealing with a bit of a intense uh, snow forecast, so we might not even make it to the last leg of my tour in BC. Oh, you got to get over the mountains? If we get snowed in in, uh, in Calgary. That'll be fun. How was it there? You were there for the climate uh, strike as well? Yeah, I was in... Um, in the, in, at the legis- in oil country? Exactly, at the legislature yesterday. And I mean, I'm from Montreal, so, you know, it's hard to impress me with a, with a, a turnout at a rally. But there, w- there must have been around four or 5,000 people uh, in front of the legislature, which is, I was told, was the biggest turnout that people here have seen since the anti-war movement. Wow. So people were really thrilled. Uh, there's a lot of great energy, a lot of like, you know, anti-capitalist signs from a lot of the youth. One of my favorites was related pertinently to our uh, topic um, about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The sign was, um, he said he cared. It wasn't Trudeau. <laughs> That's Sorry, pretty I'm good. A, I'm a sucker for bad puns. So, And was it mostly, were there a lot of kids? Were there a lot of uh, high school students? Yeah, a lot of high school students, university students. Uh, there was some union representation as well from the Alberta Federation of Labor, from the Alberta Union of Public Employees, and, you know, befitting the current regime in Alberta, the UCP. I think from the window where uh, Jason Kenney's comms department works, there were some people who had put out like, I heart the oil sands posters. Um <laughs> Those were in the window overlooking. Prominently displayed in the windows to, con- to troll, the, uh, troll the protesters. Well, maybe we can get into that a little bit later and the sort of significance of the climate strike and, and how it relates to our current political moment, uh, the election, and possibilities for transformational change that are represented in the Green New Deal and, and other proposals like that. But why don't we talk a little bit about your book, which just came out, and maybe if you can just tell, sort of give an overview of, of your purpose in writing the book. Um, I Probably for most listeners, it's not going to be a surprise that, that Trudeau is not really a, a true progressive or doesn't really represent a progressive vision for Canada. But maybe an overview, if you can just talk a little bit about your motives in writing it. Sure. Um, I guess I, w- I was interested in understanding how the Liberal Party and the Liberal government are such, you know, effective practitioners of hegemony. Um, while I was writing the book, I actually had this, uh, this quote from uh, none other than Lenin uh, st- staring at me. And the quote was something to the effect of, look, if you don't understand the strength of your, if you don't seek to understand the strength of your enemy, you'll blind yourself to his achievements, right? And my sense is, is that a lot of the left in this country simply dismisses offhand the Liberal Party. Um, and so I think they haven't really understood the 
unique, unparalleled success of this liberal party, which I think in some ways is uh, unlike any other liberal party in the West, if not the entire world, right? I mean, they've been in power 85 of the last 125 years. They have managed to, I think, maintain an incredibly unnatural political alignment in this country, right? Like, unlike a place like the UK, maybe we can talk more about UK politics later, uh, you know, the Liberal Party has been, you know, marginalized to a rump, right? And there is a natural alignment between the left and the right, right? Uh, here in this country, you have a party like the Liberals, you know, who operate kind of as a managerial pseudo-center, often straddling a huge swath of the progressive, enduring progressive majority in this country, and managing time and time again to govern considerably to the right. And I was, yeah, I was, I was, I feel like, you know, Trudeau is part of a tradition of that kind of politics. But in some ways, he, at least for the first few years, was uniquely successful at updating that for the kind of modern Instagram social media era. Um, you know, in many ways, he's like Mackenzie King, uh, remarkably similar to in the dynamics of elections to his father. Although I don't know how Instagrammable Mackenzie King would have been. <laughs> Who knows, man? If you've ever read his stuff, there's some like really dank, wacky scribblings. Yeah. wasn't? Didn't he commun- Am I wrong that he's the one who communicated with his mother through a medium? Exactly. Right. There's some there's some serious fodder there for like, you know, Marion Williamson style. Like, and lived uh, with his mother most of his life, I think. That's it too. Yeah. So, and you know. Although he did we- give us one of the best campaign slogans in Canadian history. Which was that? It was conscription if necessary, but not necessarily conscription. Nice. That, and I think that encapsulates in a way the entire liberal platitudinous approach to politics because that was a deeply de- divided political question mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. Quebec and the rest of Canada, Quebec being firmly uh, anti-conscription at the time. And so he comes up with a incredibly mealy mouth formula that sounds reassuring and good and it worked so that's perfect yeah that is that is a perfect distillation it reminds me of a quote from marx uh not carl but groucho uh which kind of uh, is a perfect emblem of that approach uh, the line is uh here are my principles oh well if you don't like them i have others right <laughs> And I think, I mean, what you're speaking to in terms of understanding how the Liberal Party, how, how its appeal has endured, I think I want to differentiate maybe, and, and we can get into each of these in a bit more depth later, but in the responses of the left, between the sort of farther left, the more self-consciously socialist left, which does see liberal hegemony and perhaps... Um, doesn't seek to understand it or take it seriously. And then there's the NDP, which I think has always approached it as a source of frustration and irritation that these guys are just lying and people are going for it. And their response ever more so in recent years has been, how do we emulate that? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think they, I think they have suffered from a kind of resentment and envy complex that has deeply uh, skewed their own politics. Like, I think, you know, there has been, on one hand, this long slide to the pseudo neoliberal center, but also in the recent years, like, I, as I described it in the book, I think the people around Jagmeet essentially, uh, deployed the Trudeau formula, 
you know, for the first at least two, three, two, two years of his leadership. Well, say, can you say what the Trudeau formula is? Because that's the title of your book. Sure. Well, I think it, it's it's as simple as, you know, talking this great game about transforming society on behalf of the 99% while quietly assuring the 1% that things won't fundamentally change. Um, and to, to my mind, they have, you know, been pretty deft at that kind of quiet signaling, which I think has been missed by most of the public and even by the left. Like, you know, they, they, they're, they're that careful at striking that kind of quiet compact uh, that most people tend, tend to miss it. And I think the, the, the deeper, more enduring part of the formula is that uh, liberal habit and tradition of, you know, acting as this, this kind of like managerial establishment shock absorber, right? So, you know, they will give as much as the system can manage, whether that be through, you know, co-opting the language of our social movements, making, you know, selective concessions when pushed, often kind of cleaving off and absorbing uh, a layer of leadership from our movements or progressive institutions. Right. Um, and, and those people may well be dupes, right? I mean, I think there is a, a wing of left liberalism that believes the liberal party does represent progressive values. I think it's a big part of that. Um, and to some extent, they they represent the progressive ambitions of a professional, professional managerial class, right? Which is limited to quite shallow social progressivism, right? Um, right. LGBTQ rights, uh, conceived in a, you know, middle class way, the most shallow kind of multicultural anti-racism, um, you know, which sees few more racialized faces in high places. And, you know, the kind of environmentalism of the market, right? Which, you know, sues the, the conscience of, uh, the elite, but doesn't fundamentally alter the intense polluting industrial system that we have. Well, and I think there's uh, when when we look at, for example, the NDP in government, we often see that they govern well to the right of where they campaigned. And I think the default explanation in that case is they're they're generally unprepared for the demands of office. But with the liberals, what comes out in your book, which I think is pretty striking, is that it isn't a sort of naivete like they're saying all these things and they they really want to do them and we can go down the list which you cover in your book but what really comes out in your book super clearly is like what you talked about earlier um the the compact with with capital and what gets said in closed doors in bay street luncheon clubs with uh, canada's wealthiest elites which is we really have no intention of moving against capital. We're just, it's out and out said, we're going to do this to manage capitalism in your interest. And so that is a very self-conscious politic. And I don't know, maybe you want to say more about that. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I was, I was struck by that speech he gave to the Canadian Club of Toronto, which is this, you know, the ritziest uh, luncheon speaker series of Bay Street, uh, just about four months before he became prime minister. And I think it's the most like unvarnished statement of this liberal purpose. I mean, he's basically speaking to like the billionaire class on Bay Street. And he essentially tells them, look, like discontent in this country is rising. And 
And he, and he just like, you know, he runs through a list of all the gloomy statistics that we on the left often refer to, right? Like the, you know, growing inequality in the country, the fact that most people can't make ends meet at the end of the month, uh, the fact that uh, so few people retiring have pensions anymore. Um, but then his answer isn't like, you know, we need to change this economic system. His answer is, how are we going to restore confidence in the system, right? And what is striking is the way he puts it to these people. He, he essentially says, like, if we don't do a bit of that restoration work, uh, Canadians are, quote, going to begin to entertain more radical options. And, and everybody mean, it, it, in the room understood what that meant. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was it was so quiet that you could hear like uh, a utensil hit one of those fancy pieces of China. Um, I mean, he was basically saying, like, look, it's not, not only could you, I think, like, you mean, it actually, you, you did actually hear, you did actually hear, you could hear it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, I mean, it, it, it boils down to like, look, it's either me or the pitchforks, right? And, um, right. Although in a way, you think, wow, these people have a frenzied imagination, because in reality, there still is no organized left capable of challenging capital, it just represents a potential, and they're scared even of the potential. I think they're scared even that, but there were, you know, there were, there were the beginnings of signs of, um, organized discontent. I mean, this was a few years after, after Occupy, Occupy had spun right. up just a few blocks from where they were eating. You know, Idle No More had happened. Right. There was the Quebec student movement, Black Lives Matter in Toronto. So, you know, there were the, there were the signs of discontent. And what's striking to me about that, that statement of purpose, you know, of savvy collaboration rather than strident confrontation from the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau is that to my mind, the Liberals are far more canny readers of the political temperature in the country, right? Like more canny than more canny, certainly than the conservatives or the NDP, right? right. Like they have a sense and certainly the people around who, who Trudeau had assembled around him, like Christia Friedland and uh, Dominic Barton, you know, Dominic Barton's this really, I think, fascinating character who can just say who he is is he was he the head of mckinsey global yeah head of mckinsey and co and maybe people like, don't know what mckinsey is i mean it's, it's it's so synonymous with the interests of the corporate elite it's this kind of financial consultancy political consultancy right firm. they're they're the people that tell multinational corporations around the world to to fire more people to save exactly money. yeah they're known they're they're known as the the legitimators of mass layoffs um and so they're known you know they're known they're known just simply as the firm and Dominic Barton was the head of it, yeah, Canadian-born, uh, and he he eventually became the head chair of Trudeau's Economic Advisory Council. Um, but before that, just after the financial recession had hit, he had done this kind of like globe-trotting political audit of capitalism. Had spoken to four hundred business and uh, political leaders, people with their finger on the pulse of the exactly. public. <laughs> no, you know, I'm just I'm kidding on the pulse of oh, capital. Oh, oh. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Well, I, I would yeah. say that the, the reason I missed that joke was I was going to say that I think Barton is one of the more intelligent members of that kind of Davos transnational class. Right. Um, someone who's actually thinking about the flaws inherent to capitalism. And his view was that, look, capitalism was sick, right? That it's, you know, endless pursuit of profits and growth had led to a breakdown in legitimacy, right? Which I guess is not a surprise to the left, but it certainly puts him in a select class of capitalist thinkers, right? Um, and it's something we can go into later too, is that I think the Canadian elite are exceptionally unimaginative when it comes to making the kind of more substantive reforms required to 
do system management. So like, you know, the Green New Deal, of course, is in the news these days. And it, the name comes from this moment when U.S., the U.S. ruling class actually was able to make significant, enter a significant period of restoration, right? It was quite sub- substantive, right? Like the public tra- transit works, the arts programs, the employment strategies. But here in Canada, like, you know, what did our, our ruling class do? They, they sent workers to like labor camps. So there's an option. Uh, um, but I'll to say that, so, you know, Barton was like a analytic lion, but a prescriptive lamb in that his actual recommendations were in, entirely cosmetic, you know, like talks about how capitalism should shift to shift from like short term, what, what he calls sh- long from short term to long term capitalism, right? And, and that it should be satisfied with a few percentile less in, in profit returns. And that, you know, CEOs should give a few percentile away in their, in their wages. And that, you know, there should be some environmental initiatives that corporations should undertake to boost their, you know, boost confidence in the economic system. Yeah. And you wonder if they really believe that that's adequate. They were very well seem to because that's basically what we get from people like Justin Trudeau, you know, um, Christia Freeland's another one who's kind of like, you know, in her previous career as a journalist, was very well aware of the failings of the global financial architecture, trade deals, you know, the hollowing out of middle working class living standards. And her too, her prescription is, well, we need like a, as she describes it, a kind of democratic Reagan, you know, who can play to the 99% and offer people some kind of, you know, refurbishment of a anti-populist politic. And then, you know, she becomes a key advisor to, to Trudeau as well. And not only key advisor, but presumed by many to be the heir apparent. I think so, yeah. She's also a very effective kind of like billionaire whisperer. That's where, you know, that was her stock and trade as a, as a journalist. Um, but all these people were aware of the kind of like um, breakdown in neoliberal hegemonic legitimacy, right? And like they weren't, of course, prepared to make any kind of substantial concessions, but they were keenly aware. And so my sense is, is that a lot of that fed into the political branding of this incarnation of the Liberal Party. Um, because you see it like one of the key policies or brands that that helped Trudeau, you know, win the mantle of the agent of change was that hike of taxes on the 1%, right? Which Gerald Butts had him regularly repeat. Right. Which, as you point out in your book, was largely nugatory because they left in place loopholes that would allow those people to get out of pay- paying those taxes, even if the yeah, rates were and higher. The, and the, 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 the tax hike in itself was actually just mostly benefited the top, top 10% of Canada's wealthiest. Who they called the middle class. Yes. And the, I mean, I think they were just trying to distract from who it actually served. Right. Professional managerial class. The professional managerial class. And, you know, as we saw the, from the latest StatsCan report as well, not only did the income of the t- that top 1% increase faster than any other group in Canada, but their overall taxes actually went down despite this, you know, um, much minor. vaunted uh, tax on the wealthy. Exactly. Um, but it, it certainly played to their advantage. And now in this election, Trudeau is again playing up how they aren't the party that will make tax breaks for the 1%. So they're still, ri- they're still riding this kind of like light populism um, that proved to their um, advantage in, in 2015. 
Yeah. And what's interesting, I mean, in the current climate, uh, you talk a little bit about Harper and Harper's approach. And, and one of the things that stands out and whether Harper is typical in this respect of conservatives or was his was sui generis, I, I don't know. But one of the things that stands out in your book is that liberals are really much closer to the bourgeoisie and capitalist elites, at least in central Canada, than uh, Harper ever was. And even though his ideological project really was was one that would benefit capital to a large degree, they weren't intimate with capital, capitalists in the same way that the Liberal Party and, and Trudeau are. But well, what's your sense of that? You know, the differences between the conservatives and the liberals in terms of their relation to capital. Yeah. So I describe in the book how under Harper, um, the main kind of front of the top corporations in this country, the Business Council of Canada, which was once the Canadian uh, Council of Corporate Executives, but goes through kind of regular rebrandings, um, how they were kind of dislodged from their, you know, self-anointed perch as the enlightened arbiters of government policy. And, you know, this is a formation that kind of helped usher in the neoliberal revolution in Canada. They were, they, they were formed in the early 70s in response to, you know, growing working class power, the success of, you know, David Lewis's 1972 corporate welfare bums campaign, the, you know, the crash in oil prices, um, just the kind of disintegration of that moment of, comp, you know, politi political compact. Um, and you know diminishing profits. Anyways, they've been they've been incredibly successful. The the founder of Davos called them the most effective CEO based organization in the world. And they have you know irrespective of 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 the political governments, political parties in power, they have often been the ones to vet and approve uh, government policy. Uh, but what was interesting is that you know Harper really their their representatives are are heavily dominated by by finance, by the banks. And what you see from them often is a much like, you know, the, the, the guys who run the banks have a much keener appreciation of system management. They have a bird's, bird's eye view of, of politics in a way that the more... Um, right. They're used to thinking sort of actuarially. Exactly. Um, more, more, much more than the factional kind of interests. And they're... And they don't feel like outsiders. They don't feel like outsiders. They tend to support the Liberal Party. Which the oil patch does feel like, even though they're billionaires. Well, I would say even that in the oil patch, the, the juniors and the oil field service companies and basically small, what I, what I describe as small oil, their allegiances are to the Conservative Party. They're the ones who dabble in, you know, climate denialism. Um, the big oil companies, which have extremely close links to Bay Street, and they're the ones that overwhelmingly supported the carbon tax as this kind of, um, you know, uh, green fig leaf buying off of of you know canadians worries about climate change and you know harper really had no time for them and um there was a great deal of disgruntlement increasingly during his reign to the point where as i described in my book at one meeting after the the crash uh the room was the room of executives from the business council of canada were canvassed and but what to do and everyone in the room said raise my taxes um, which was quite a statement from that, you know, corporate class. Uh, I think they knew also that something had to give, right? And Harper just wouldn't do it for them, right? Like, of course, Harper was ideologically dead set against anything to do with 
uh, increase taxes. And so he kind of froze these guys out. And they He was a bit were, of a dick that way too. He just, <laughs> right? I'm sure that was part of it. They basically, when, when this happened, um, uh, what's his name? The head of the TD Bank. Oh, Ed Clark? Ed Clark, yeah. But, the one who advised Kathleen Wynne to sell... Yes, sell Hydro. Hydro One or whatever it was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but basically he like, it got so bad that he went public with his concerns and uh, said that Harper wasn't listening to, you know, the corporate executives in this country. Harper got so pissed that they sent out, the party sent out uh, like an e-blast to all its members in the media suggesting that Ed Clark was tied to the liberals and, you know, how dare he, he makes $11 million a year. He can pay more taxes, but, you know, can the ordinary Canadian. Right. And you mentioned in the book how this was like served as a, like a chill, had a chilling effect even on some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the country. Yeah. Like it got so, you know, you know, I think the titans of of Bay Street are not used to, uh, you know, public rebukes, uh, certainly not from prime ministers. You know, Trudeau was a much more able conduit of the corporate executives policy preferences i think this is one of the most like um enviable skills of the of the liberal party which is this um i mean and it is an it is a a function of their like hegemonic skill which is like they take uh, they channel the preferred policies of this you know corporate front and transform them into seemingly progressive options for canadians um so whether that's the carbon tax right which has been transformed in our understanding in the mainstream media as like the lip into like the litmus test of climate action bravery like that was actually the preferred uh strategic shift from the corporate lobby in this country right um you know some people say that well okay the liberals have done some good things they refunded women's groups for example they legalized marijuana what are you know the things that they do supposedly come through on why do they come through on those things is that you know what's your explanation for that well take take marijuana legalization for one thing right i mean trudeau embraced it in what 213 214 and it kind of gave him this like whiff of you know countercultural anti-conformism right but the potential of opening this new frontier of of a market basically uh, had been long eyed at that point by corporate lawyers by industry by you know even former cops who had spent their earlier years criminalizing and imprisoning racialized people right from- i mean a lucrative market was already there they just weren't getting a cut of it exactly and they wanted it regulated and um rationalized uh by the state so um and that, to my mind, you know, too, that won them these progressive bona fides. But in, in no way have we seen any kind of um, a progressive policy shift on these things. You know, they, they've been extremely laggardly, too, in, um, in even considering whether people who built up criminal records uh, for minimal marijuana possession would, uh, would have their records cleansed. Which they finally did, but it's a, it's a did. cumbersome process. They could just, they could say, look, those records should all be expunged. Precisely. And we've seen this too in another aspect of their agenda that has gotten very little criticism, I think, from not even not to the mainstream media, not to not to mention even just the left, you know, which is uh, the way in which similarly to, to marijuana, they've opened up new spheres of public infrastructure to privatization in a way that 
the conservatives were never able to. And that's a that's an insidious element of the China Trudeau formula as well. Right. And th- and that's not being done in a very high profile way. Like you talk about all the exclusive um meetings with people like Barton and uh and BlackRock, right? Which is the, you know, the titan of Wall Street that at one point this investment firm I think controlled like indirectly or directly 10% of global financial assets, right? So just a huge ruthless uh financial player and they are getting under the Trudeau government, exclusive secret meetings with, you know, top ministers to basically rewrite their their talking points. Um, it also just goes to show the kind of insidious way in which liberal governments are even more effective implementers of this neoliberal agenda. Because um, I think I, I came across a, a line in Dalton McGinty's uh, autobiography where he was boasting about how in the 90s, and early 2000s in, in Ontario, while he was premier, they were actually able to advance and strike more deals with the private sector than the conservatives were because they were, quote, more trusted than the conservatives. Um, and I think it goes to show this, this, the success of that kind of symbolic politics that the Trudeau government practices um, and liberals before them. There's a great line that we, I came across too, uh, from David Dodge in the 90s, referring to basically like the the way in which the liberal government affected what was the most dramatic restructuring of neoliberal restructuring of the Canadian state, right? The, the downsizing of huge amounts of government funding and intervention in social programs that under Chrétien and Martin. And he, he describes it as the liberals were not seen as black-hearted accountants. They were seen as supporters of government. And, uh, of course, those forces then become much more effective implementers of... Right, the, they have more room because there's less... more room to operate. Counter, uh, ...countervailing force in the it political It induces arena. much more complacency. So, and that's what we've seen on, the, on, the, on, on many fronts with the Trudeau government as well. Well, staying with the theme but of, uh, of, of this sort of false public image that they use to carry out this agenda, I think, which is sort of one of the, the common threads in your book, um, and, and maybe the defining characteristic of the Trudeau formula, which is really image management. You mentioned, and I don't know who gave him this epithet you say in your book of, uh, weeper in chief. Right. That's Audra Simpson. Right. Audra Simpson. And that, you know, as Audra Simpson's using it, I think she's referring specifically to his posture in relation to indigenous issues, which he campaigned pretty clearly on in the election, and you describe how uh, when asked directly if he would unambiguously recognize indigenous people's right to free prior and informed consent, he said, absolutely, and was asked, does that mean no means no? And he said, yes, Uh, which, you know, once he's in office, of course, he says, no, well, no doesn't really mean no. There's no veto, right? Suddenly the talk is about a veto. And, and a lot of it was this politics of gesture and posture. And I suppose we can't really talk about that without dealing straight up front which, with the, uh, the brownface and blackface revelations that have just come out, and which is something that you already knew about more than a year ago. So maybe you want get to get into that a little bit and just talk a bit about what this helped us understand about Trudeau. Yeah, I mean... It definitely bespeaks the elite colonial culture in which he was raised. Um, I mean, Quebec in particular, where where he grew up, still has a normalized 
culture of donning blackface. Um, I don't think people in English Canada are aware just how uh, normalized it still is, despite, you know, the increasing protests of, um, of people of color. Um, you know, and it, it, I think it speaks to the kind of particular like double colonial complex that exists in Quebec, whereby the colonizer, white colonizer population thinks of themselves as the, you know, um, as a colonizer. And so therefore, you know, they can't be, um, they can't themselves, they're blind to the fact that they themselves are, are colonizers. Um, right. and it creates all these perverse pathologies in the culture, um, which includes the maintenance of this, you know, continuing racist uh, tradition. Uh, and I think that actually speaks to... Which we should be clear also has historically been used as a trope by Anglophone Canada in a fairly reactionary way. So we want to put that in kind of critical framing, yet at the same time, uh, what you're saying is true. <laughs> yes. Um... I mean, you know, so uh, it, it's complicated because often it's said in, in English Canada without looking at the ways in which English Canada is in a colonial relation to French Quebec. Yeah. Or at least at this point, it's still a dominant position. Right. Um, I think it's, I mean, it's a pedantic argument. We can probably get into whether that relationship was initially colonial or just a dominant. I one. don't think we need to get into that one in this episode. <laughs> leave that for another podcast. I'll leave that for another podcast with, that will, some, that with will, some francophones will, on it. That will piss off, inevitably piss off just about everyone. Yeah, we can. I think that's an episode where let's, let's aim for pissing off absolutely everybody. <laughs> um but i think that only goes so far with trudeau because you know he grew up it was very cosmopolitan they traveled a lot uh father was at least uh, put himself out to be a a man of the world as it were uh I, they had a lot of exposure to canada outside of quebec and the other thing is here's my my two cents on it you look at these photos and his shit-eating grin to me tells me that he did know it was wrong and he knew it was racist. And that was part of the fun of it for him because he, he, he did grow up, uh, with a silver spoon in his mouth and with a feeling of immunity and he can do whatever and get away with it. And by the time he's living in Vancouver, like, you know, as somebody who grew up in Toronto, a white guy who grew up in Toronto, not only have I never done blackface or brownface or been tempted to, I, I don't know. I've never seen it. I've never seen it done anywhere. I've talked to older people who grew up in wasp neighborhoods here and they say they've also never seen it. So it's, it's certainly it's true. And like in like 2004, I, uh, I wore a costume for Halloween. This was just like, you know, three years after his, his okay, last. Okay. It's all uh, coming incident. out now. It's all coming. You heard <laughs> no, it no, here I first, a, people. No, I was a, I was a wigger. Trudeau biographer. No, you were a wigger. Okay. I was a wigger, right? So that was, that, that was like, I had like a long white shirt. I had like, I had put like, I was wearing like bling. I had put, um, I put some tinfoil on one of my teeth. I don't know but if that, that was, is that, that was satirizing how white people appropriate, uh, black culture. Um, right. But even then, even that, even then I thought that that was like a bit too risky. A bit off. Uh, and could, you know, backfire. And that was 2004. So that was just three years after he Well, did we'll it. find out as people listen to this podcast, whether you were right. <laughs> yeah. So 2004, you're saying you already knew it was risque. And he's at this point teaching in Vancouver, uh, you know, the last, the last incident that we know about in a, a very multiracial, multicultural city. And you think he would have absorbed uh, some sense that this is not a thing I should be doing. Well, yeah. And I think that you know, it speaks certainly to his, um, so to the profoundly, 
racist ways in which he has governed, right? When it comes, and I, and I, I mean, I think blackface too st- structurally operates as a way of excluding and um, structuring racist white spaces, right? Like it's 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 intended to send a a, a message. A message of power and domination. Power and domination. I mean, that's one of the things people say, oh, well, he was standing next to two South Asian guys. Okay, well, in some ways that makes it way worse, (laughs) right? Like, because because of that message that you're talking about. And it's not like, I mean, were they canvassed? We don't know. I mean, were they canvassed in advance? Are you okay with this if I do this, right? It doesn't seem like this was a completely consensual exercise on their part. And after all, this is the son of a of a former prime minister who for a long time was seen as somebody who had opened canada's doors to uh to immigrants of color from around the world and so you know it's a complicated thing and not to mention the fact that you know their their opinions on the episode are we're, we're asked now and it's refracted through the exigencies of um an election campaign yeah. so um, you know, people will modulate their opinions based on that. Um, as we've seen, you know, the greatest, uh, the greatest adverse reaction to his episode, I think from the third of Canadians who are said to be upset by it, two thirds of those are conservative voters. Right. And they're not the people who represent really the most anti-racist politics. Uh, no. So, so it's just been refracted through this prism of the elections. Right. Um, but part of this, so this this is kind of uh, in in a in a very I don't know if I want to use the word micro political sense, but certainly to contrast it with his politics on indigenous issues and generally where he and by the way you know he certainly he likes dressing up in lots of different ways and you talk a little bit about Trudeau appearing in uh, ceremonial dress uh, at a First Nation. Yeah, where he was given a, he was given an he was gifted an indigenous headdress. He was he was gifted an indigenous name which ironically was uh, the one who keeps trying. Right. And uh, Trying I, doesn't mean succeeding, by the way. No. Well, trying trying to do what exactly? Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, he. you talk about, there's a, a very long chapter in your book about the reconciliation industry. And maybe, what do you mean by that phrase? That's not really your phrase that you invented, but. No, it's one that, you know, a few critics of Trudeau have been using in the last few years increasingly. Um, actually, it's ten o'clock. We have to. I, my calorie run is at two p.m. Is and it? Oh, you got to go. We ha- should we? Yeah, we to, can we keep talking later? Yeah, we should keep talking. Um, um, we can do that in our a- Patreon episode. Uh, like oh, we can do we another. Do. We can do another thing because we didn't talk about the Green New Deal and climate no. change or the current election or the reconciliation industry. So, all right, let's continue later. Yeah. Well, good luck. Safe driving. No, but we don't have we don't have winter tires, so oh, we'll there see you how that go. Goes. Yeah. Okay. Well, drive safely. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Take it easy. Bye. Well, as you heard, Martin had to leave, but we're going to continue this discussion, and the second segment will be made available for our Patreon supporters next week. Remember that you can support the Oats for Breakfast podcast by going to Patreon.com/slash/OatsForBreakfast and becoming a patron. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.